Spring turkey season is upon us, and don't be caught out in the woods without having Onyx Hunt on your phone. One feature Onyx has that is often overlooked for turkey hunting is their recent imagery filter with their elite memberships. This imagery is updated week to week, and it comes in extremely handy, especially when you're trying to find these gobble zones where these turkeys will go out in a high spot on a fresh clear cut and strut around all day long. Actually, I was just looking at on Onyx where, where the timber company just came into Andrew's club and did a very small clear cut along this creek, and I can see the high spots on the topographical map, but also I can see exactly where they mulch, and those are going to be hot spots for finding gobblers, especially mid-morning after they get off their hens, getting up on these little high spots in this fresh, small clear cut along the creek and strutting and gobbling all day long. If you want to give Onyx a try, you can actually download it for free, try it for seven days, and if you decide to purchase, you can use the promo code SOUTHERN and save on your premium and elite memberships. So go into this turkey season, know where you stand with Onyx. Well, guys, we have some exciting news for you from Vortex about their brand new eyewear, their Banshee and Jackal sunglasses. Me and Andrew have had these for a few weeks now, right before the release, and we've been extremely impressed. They're awesome glasses, guys. And listen, if you're needing some new sunglasses, not only do they have the VIP warranty, but they're tough as crap, guys. Uh, Scratch-resistant eyewear, uh, it's extremely important. And also, they have safety features as well. So when you're out shooting at the range, again, these are rated glasses, so you are going to be more than protected when you're at the range. But they also look fantastic when you're out around town. So right now, Vortex has some special pricing on their website, which is vortexoptics.com for the new eyewear. But also, if you use the code SOUTHERN20, you get to save even more on this special pricing for right now at vortexoptics.com. Again, check out the new eyewear from vortexoptics.com and use the promo code SOUTHERN20 to save on their brand new eyewear. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Why take one vacation with the family when you could take all of them? With Royal Caribbean, you don't just go to the beach. You visit a private island and race down the tallest water slide in North America. You don't just go for a road trip. You ATV and zip line through the jungle. You don't just go somewhere new. You rappel down waterfalls and discover ancient temples. Because this isn't just any vacation. This is all the vacations. Come seek the Royal Caribbean. Ships Registry, Bahamas. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. You're listening to the Southern Outdoorsman Podcast. Make sure you like and subscribe to the podcast. You can check us out on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. If you'd like to support the show, you can go to patreon.com forward slash the Southern Outdoorsman. Now let's get to the episode. Everybody knows where I was born. 
Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of the Southern Outdoorsman Podcast, coming at you from the 2022 uh, NWTF convention up here in Nashville, Tennessee. Sitting here with uh, two good old boys. Got old Matt Dye from Lane Legacy, and I got Chad, Ch- oh, so I'm sorry, Chainsaw Chad. There you go. Uh, Keith coming in from uh, Lane Legacy as well. How y'all doing? Good, man. Pretty good. Oh man, pretty good. Well, that's that's it. Where's the energy, Chad? Y'all gotta bring, <laughs> bring the heat on this I was, one. I was more energetic about the Annie Ann's pretzel sandwich. <laughs> <laughs> now, my energy peaked on that, and now it's it's kind of dropped a little more. That, that carb loads hit you. You're like, yeah. oh man, I'm about to take a nap right here. Kind, kind of mind blown that they had breakfast, and I'm very excited that they do. <laughs> I mean, it's kind of—I wouldn't say it's life changing, but it was darn good. It went from, and I, I was disappointed when I saw that they didn't have pretzels. I was like, oh, they're open, and then I'm like, oh, they just have breakfast. Sandwiches, and then I got the breakfast sandwich and realized, put it to his lips. Where's like, that? <laughs> what's it? What's the place called? Annie Ann's. Annie Ann's. Listen, that's the highlight of the NWTF. No, not really. No, it's been a great show. This so podcast far. is going to be the highlight. I'm telling you, dude. Like, listen, everybody's seen behind the scenes. Everybody's running over there buying some TSS, dude. It's crazy. Everybody, I mean, they're they're fighting each other over there, trying to get. I'm telling, I was over there yesterday morning, like Thursday morning. This is this is Friday, second day of the show, and it was crazy yesterday morning, like right after it opened, because I had to buy some ammo for a buddy of mine, and. uh yeah, dude. I'm like everybody's over there. Like Apex booth, the Verdict booth, the freaking uh, Federal booth. They're probably all dude, a lot 65 people deep, easy. Oh yeah, oh yeah. So they're, they've been moving some ammo, that's for sure. Yeah. Which again, you know, we're talking about ammo. And we want to kill some turkeys. Well, maybe to kind of segue over, I want to talk to you guys. Talk a little bit about habitat. I want to talk a little bit about, uh, of course, turkey habitat and kind of managing some of these smaller properties. You know, we've had some other guests on this spring. That's kind of hit on some of these topics but hasn't come from like y'all's realm of like expertise which is like that private land um consulting uh aspect where you're working Mm -hmm. with landowners of all different sizes all across the southeast and across the midwest and across the country really yep um and kind of seeing how different land uses could be applied based off the region and what's actually being done on the property whether it's active cattle farm whether you know you're dealing with you know oak hickory forest you're dealing with loblollies or whatever's going on there so to kind of kick us off here at uh, the old NWTF convention with the uh, Lane Legacy guys. Of course, Adam didn't join us. He's got old baby going on. Is this, yeah. is this his first child, second child? Third. Third. Oh, man. Oh, yeah. Busy yeah. guy. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Lord. He's yeah. going to have the oldest is three, too. So, like. Three, three and under. Nice. Yes. So, no wonder <laughs> he had to stay at home. Going to be busy. He's going to be busy. He's yep. going to be busy. It'll be a busy spring for him, too. Oh, yeah juggling everything but uh but we got you guys here i, I want to talk a little bit again about these kind of smaller properties w- when it came to first off let's tell the story of lane and legacy real quick sure because by the way I, I say this right now my uncle is the biggest fan of you guys okay? <laughs> awesome so, man. you listen matt you and adam he's been watching you guys since the growing deer days yeah and he's like i told him this was probably two weeks ago and uh it's after we did that episode with adam and i was like yeah dude this is this episode with uh uh adam keith uh, from Land and Legacy, and he's Adam Keith, and he didn't know y'all started Land and Legacy. He just, oh, really? Yeah, yeah, he didn't know anything about that for whatever reason, but he just, yeah, yeah. He just knew the name. I'm like, yeah, you know, Adam and Matt started, you know, their own company, you know, after kind of leaving right. uh, Grown Deer, and it's been, you know, sh- extremely successful. He said, no way, dude, I'm telling you, biggest fan. He's like, of all the people <laughs> he would meet, dude, oh, be emphatic, uh, emphatic of meet with you guys. But it brings up the question is, again, the small property management and like what can be done there based off the region. I know y'all have a lot of expertise. So before we get into it, yeah. what's the story on Land Legacy? How did y'all get started and everything to kind of give the, the listeners a, an idea behind the scenes of what's been happening the yeah. last four or five yeah. years? Yeah. So we were at a position um, in a different company and just, just dude, time was 
need, needed to leave, right? So started Land of Legacy just kind of out of a need of um, money. <laughs> I mean, we had expertise and we had skill. We both had uh, college training and we knew that, hey, we, we know landowners and we're passionate about this. We do this on our own or have done it growing up. Let's just branch out and start consulting. Um, very blessed early on to begin working with some great folks and referrals started coming through. Hey, you know, we worked with you. Let's go work with him. And, um, you know, our, our, our main business and what we do outside of like podcasting content creation is to visit privately owned farms, write site specific management plans for them to reach their goals and their goals of these landowners vary from region to region, from property to property, mostly revolving around somehow increasing the recreational potential of that site, whether it be wild turkeys, white-tailed deer, bobwhite quail. But many of them have another component to that property, such as, hey, I still need to pay for this thing. So Mm -hmm. either I'm managing timber alongside of it, so I'm considerate of timber value, or I have a cattle farm and I need acres to be able to um, run cows on. So how do I combine and make this entire property work if you will, all together, kind of seamless. It's not like compartmentalized, right? Um, Because there's a lot of crossover. A lot of people just want to just distinctly put cows and wildlife in a different category where it's like, you know, honestly, if, if, if you open your mind to management strategies Mm -hmm. of both, you can work and have some overlap. And and if you have that overlap, um, then we're making use of all the acres that you own. Right. So we can achieve a lot of things, um, in understanding goals first and then creatively utilizing cows, timber management, um, grassland management to improve wildlife. Because the wildlife that exists there are a byproduct of what is growing on site. And that's interesting. Well, one thing that you mentioned that I found very interesting just right now is it's not an either or thing. It's not like, uh, you know, is this going to be 100% recreational use and wildlife use only, or are we going to focus more on a return on investment from some kind of either whether it's going to be a cattle operation and or timber? Yeah. And because some of the other conversations I've had with people, it was more kind of an either or thing for the most part. It's like, okay, are we focusing more on that return on investment and then mm-hmm. how can we just benefit around that for the wildlife? Um, or are we going to go all in on, on wildlife and not focus so much on a return on investment from any kind of timber operation, especially when we're talking timber here? Absolutely. Especially in the Southeast situation. Very few people have the opportunity to have a large piece of property with only recreation in mind. I mean, you see a little more of it, but it makes it easier for a lot of people to have an income off of that property as well. Mm -hmm. I mean, not many people have the deep pockets to be able to do whatever you want with a property and you have unlimited resources, whatever whatever you want, tons of food plots, all that kind of stuff. It's it's not as common as you have a place and it's like, well, I need to be able to pay the taxes on this. How do I do it? Do I, do I use cattle? Do I use stuff like that? And if you can do those ways to make money on top of benefiting your recreation mm-hmm. or at least not hurting your recreation opportunities on the property, then it's a win-win for you. I think I think that's where there's a lot of misunderstanding is it's like you have to give up. Like you feel like you have to sacrifice things if you need to make money or income off of a property. It's like, mm-hmm. whoa, 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 whoa. We're, we're managing natural resources here and there's, there's ways or there's even portions of the property that are best suited to make um, 
better investment long term on your on your your timber ground, right? So if you've got really harsh south and west facing slopes, your timber on that site's going to be growing at a slower rate than on the opposing side of the ridge, right? So let's take that in consideration. We can split that ridge in our mind to say let's kind of more aggressively devote some of the south and west facing slopes to a wildlife benefit and we'll grow some timber on the east and north facing slopes here where you can have your cake and eat it too instead mm. of just saying that whole hundred acre section man that's that's all just timber now i'm going to come over here and and manage wildlife on these 50 acres well that's not how wildlife use the landscape so why would we try and manage it and put them in a box where let's just be open to and, and understanding the actual resource and how it's grown on a site and how it should be managed on a site. So there's there's a ton of overlap when we really dive in deep to understanding land use and the incorporation of that with wildlife. Well, it's like also adding the diversity in the property too, because hundred uh, percent. Because like a lot of properties that I see talking in the deep south, Alabama, I've seen in Mississippi and Georgia too, especially if it's. Um, now, different situation if it's a leaser hunting club. There's not as much stuff you could do on that depending totally. on who you're leasing it from, unless it's a private individual. But on our own property, it's amazing how properties I go to, and it is it might have been an old timber company property that they purchased, and they have a bunch of 25 to 30 year old pines on there. Um, you know, a lot of times lob ollie, and it's just nothing but just straight pines and maybe a couple SMZs out there yep. with, with some hardwoods, maybe again some oak hickory, maybe some white oaks on the property. But a lot of times it's just a lot of that pines in the deep but south. We're I've talking seen. maybe ten percent of a property is mm. a mix of hardwood in very distinct drainages, and that's what you got. Yep, you have pine trees and then pine needles. Yeah, absolutely. And like maybe <laughs> depending on like whether or not how well they've been thinned and everything, how long it's been since they've been thinned, there may be some more understory, but a lot of times it's not that much understory. Uh, We're talking marginal on a landscape and, and, property size. And for like, when I look at it from like the turkey side or especially quail, it's normally terrible habitat. For the deers, like they can get through there, but they're not staying on that property. They're traveling a long ways <laughs> to get everything that yeah. they need. One of the one of the phrases that we will utilize is there is a strong difference between surviving and thriving. So game animals can survive a lot of different you know various land types but they have bigger home ranges mm-hmm. if they're in a more survival mode right they're going to be using neighbors they're going to be using um the full extent of, of what their home range could be but if you have an improved property habitat wise you will see home ranges drastically shrink because they don't want to use all that energy moving across the landscape if, if all the resources are right there readily available and accessible. Mm-hmm. Um, so usage and timing of usage, duration of usage, if you have good habitat on a property, drastically changes if you're managing your habitat intentionally. And they will go from a survival mode, if you will, to just a, a thriving as an individual all right, so this I just now kind of want to change topics for this podcast. I mean, we're on the same topic you're on, but like talking about the whole like land management for Tarkin and everything. What about the more uh, a more well-rounded uh, discussion? We talked about this a little bit yesterday. I think y'all uh-huh. said you've already done a podcast episode on, which we're going to plug y'all's podcast a ton during this episode. But it's the idea of like creating your small property into like an island of diversity in a sea of monoculture around you. Sure. Where like you are like what stands out. If you're looking on an aerial map, like you are what stands out in that area surrounding you, which can, I, I know talking to Adam about this, we and him had a long conversation, but it's like 
you can bring a ton of wildlife onto a very small property. They're not going to stay there, right. but you can have a ton of activity on a small property talking, you know, 50, 60, 80 acres. Um, if you're doing stuff that your neighbors aren't doing and they're not offering on their property. I, I think first and foremost, now I'm going to turn it over to you, Chad. Um, first and foremost, being an island in a sea of monoculture, that's not like the goal, right? We're going to have a bigger impact if landowners work cooperatively, right? Mm-hmm. So, but but let's just be realistic at the same time frame. Um, that's not occurring on, on a large scale across, let's just call it the Southeast or the Midwest. Not a lot of landowners are cooperatively working together, although many have the same objectives. Mm-hmm. So I don't want to say that like, this island um, mentality is ideal. It, it, it's not, but it's the situation a lot of people are in. And you can still benefit, though, if you are that island. And we see it <laughs> in a lot of our clients. They're just either um, – well, I was, I was one. It was, a, it was a large track, but it's surrounded by thousands, hundreds of thousands of acres of national forest in the Appalachians. But there are a several thousand acre property, and they're – actively managing um and they are this island in the middle of just closed canopy matured forest trees dying on the stump like no active management um but they're seeing things differently and usage of wild game differently on their property that's a really big scale but we can still experience or a landowner can still experience that on 80 to 100 acres in a in a sea of monoculture mm-hmm. around them, whether it be hardwoods, whether it be pine plantations, whether it be cattle pastures. Um, so that's not necessarily the ideal situation, but if that's what you're given, regardless, I'm going to be managing my property for the best habitat that it can have under my own goals, restrictions, limitations, and such. Well, that's, <clears throat> you know, selfishly, you think being an island is going to be amazing because it's like oh i'll have everything here but in the same sense say turkeys if you have 90 acres you're a drop in the bucket considering their their range yeah Yeah. considering the range so Mm -hmm. yeah you're better off to be going to your neighbors and trying to promote the habitat work the same and you're going to reap the benefits of that too it may you may not hold the deer closer to you because of that but in the long run you're going to have better wildlife because other people you have more continuous acres of good habitat and not just an island how do you i think uh, yeah sorry if if you will but think of like a a ingress egress kind of thing like you're if you're in a great neighborhood you have and 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 you have good habitat you have just as much to gain as as you do lose right Mm -hmm. so you could have turkeys multiple flocks on your place they're not gonna stay on your place but in a good neighborhood that's a, that's a situation that could occur um you have just as much to gain as you do lose but if you are an island you're not gaining anything from everything around you you don't have that benefit you may have a flock on your on your on your property at some portions of a year mm-hmm. rather than continual usage um of lots of birds on the landscape this is something adam and i discuss on our on our mm-hmm. property there is it's i mean you'd like to be that island now we're a little bigger than 80 or 100 acres but it's like what we've done we've already seen like whitetail ranges we've seen them shrink we we went from growing up it was continuous closed canopy timber for miles around us 
and and or just fescue pasture and, and or fescue pasture so you saw on cameras and we didn't run as many then but it would be like shooter deer once every two weeks come through and you knew it was like they're making a huge round mm-hmm. but, but they're forced to right yeah, if the resources right. aren't aren't defining their movements and what they need on the landscape then of course they have to have a big range they have to move greater distances in between food sources or just secure cover if it's limited and in the closed canopy yeah. forest with fescue pasture around it secure cover is probably pretty hard to find it, it's it's also we've now doing all this work on the property and see the benefits we want more of our neighbors doing the same thing to have better habitat and more continuous acres but in the back of our mind we know that if we're talking to them and getting them into this they're probably not as passionate about it as us so we're going to go above and beyond what they're doing so even if theirs is good their their habitat is better than it has been but we're still going to be it's not going to be the ideal location because we're going to go above and beyond what they're going to do so there's so oh y'all said so many things that I've got a ton of questions on and also Chad's statements. Like, I'll outmanage anyone. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, challenge accepted. Here we Chad's go. Chad's all Chad at the wheel. <laughs> <laughs> so a couple things y'all, y'all mentioned earlier on just about the cattle pasture or cattle farms, and like uh, Chad, I know y'all's property is active. I think yeah. you pay with the parents' property is active cattle ranch or cattle farm, and I grew up hunting and I was in, living in Arkansas a, a cattle farm, and it was it felt like a desolate forest. As it, like like when there was timber, there was because the cow had full range of this whole property. There was only they a few fenced out of the woods. No, and yeah. there was a there was a few areas that it was just rugged enough the cattle won't go up in there, and that's where you'd find some deer sign. But it was like there were deer there, but they were traveling a long distance to finally mm-hmm. come out there, and it was just like we struggled to hunt. It was just like there should have been more deer there than what it could have been. And I know y'all have done a ton of work talk, looking at Chad. Yeah, and I wish it was a video podcast. And, <laughs> and, and it's a, a situation, too, where we have – you were kind of asking me about the deer I killed last year. Yep. So that place was not on our farm. This is a college buddy of mine. That it's a it's a cattle-first property. That's, that's their concern. He deer hunts a little during gun season. We're not the only people hunting it. It's a pretty pressured area. Mm-hmm. And – it's nice to hunt that place and have the farm that we're doing all this work on because we've got cattle on the family farm and we've got cows on Adam and I's place now. We we have cattle that we're, we're trying to manage in a different way. You know, in cattle management, there's a lot of new information out there using electric fences, using frequent moves. The benefits to wildlife can be great with that. Mm-hmm. And it's not the classic cows go everywhere they overgraze everything it's all lip high grass they go through the timber like our place we're fencing off the timber we've fenced out the riparian zones we're moving the cows frequently and it's crazy to watch the turkeys follow the cows around mm-hmm. like because there's so many bugs they're several weeks behind the grazing that the cows did after that regeneration comes there's manure on the field High density, lots of bugs, and that's we where you're seeing, finding. We broods. were seeing like the broods following them around because there's actually bare areas now. There's bare ground. There's it's it's weedy. We don't spray our pastures out. And, and specifically, I want to say this too: it's not like the timber isn't managed or burned either. There were burned areas very close proximity to where these birds were being seen. So this was not like a 
desperation um, situation of, well, that's the best we got, guys. Let's go to the pasture. No, it was like, guys, that's really good, but we'll go back to the timber later in the day and, and get in the shade. But first thing in the morning once the dew burns off, like, let's get in there and bug because that's awesome. Mm-hmm. Highly yeah. selected. They were, they were out there about every time you went there. You saw them out bugging in the fields behind. Like, we're doing weekly moves on our cows. So it would be like um, one of our previous weeks, they would be out there picking around, going through everything, and it would be pulse that we watched grow up through. And now it's, and we didn't get them till midsummer. It'll be interesting to see like through the year. And we, our family farm, when our turkey numbers were really high, so we went through a, a drop that most people experienced. But we've also now, through a lot of our timber management, we've, previously we couldn't do timber management on the, on the one place and then we bought it mm-hmm. we did a little before with the previous landowner and then we've bought it and we're doing more but through that and all the we've stepped up our burning a lot more we've able to burn a lot more frequently we've seen our turkeys jump back again well, pretty strong the, the, I mean, the rebound comparatively speaking to the neighborhood so this island mm-hmm. if you will um rebounded turkeys at a much rapid rate than the surrounding neighborhood but but what was important is you hit on three different things that we would utilize to manage turkeys or any property really at any location three disturbances cattle or grazing which is a disturbance mm-hmm. Timber management, so we're cutting trees, opening up the canopy, and then prescribed fire. Those three different tools are ways to manage whether you have pastures, improved or native pastures, whether you have timber ground. Those are the different suite of tools that are very commonly used. Um, And with the right combinations, you're going to see wild game change the way they use the landscape and the, how how often they frequent your property. I had a group of 19 jakes cross the field in front of me this like late late in bow season. 19 jakes. Well, last last fall I hunted in in December uh, with a guest and there was a group of there's 18 to 20 it was a mix of long beards mm-hmm. and and jakes on on a different food plot. Yeah. So but, we've seen our our turkey number and we we also preface most of the time we haven't trapped and we were trapping when the numbers dropped we quit trapping we don't have time we've got too much chainsaw work to do and fire and that's when our numbers have come up we don't trap anything steel before steel steel yeah. before steel that's right yeah we'll have to get that preference or what but, i'll tell you what i'll tell you one thing which is while we're doing this yeah Matt, one of y'all need to pull up your podcast, and you yeah. need to figure out what episode numbers some of these are, and we'll plug them in the episode. I do okay. that all the time on our show, so all find right. them so we don't have to like hash out a whole conversation yeah, about I'll, some I'll specific see what I can topics. Do here. So then, but, back to yep. the discussion of the cattle and the and the deer moving so far. Mm-hmm. That deer that I killed on this predominantly cattle managed place, we figured out what was it? It was a mile and a half that he was traveling. Uh, I think it was just over a mile, a mile and a quarter. So we had something some pictures like of this deer early. Yep. Early in the summer, he disappeared, came back during the rut. I don't hut the rut because my buddy that owns it gun hunts, so I just stay out of there, leave it alone. And there was a crop field that they had cover cropped that I figured out that that deer was traveling to that. I hunted a couple kind of stay back hunts to observe. Mm And confirmed that I'm like, that deer's bedding where they normally bed, but that's the choice food. So he was traveling almost every night a mile and a half to that field. 
and you get we'd have pictures of him on this field. Mm-hmm. If you just I hunted that field a little bit, you were never going to see that deer in that field in the daylight. Yeah, he was never there. Never. I killed him about twenty yards from the fence line in the last probably fifteen minutes of shooting light, and it was I just figured out. But he was betting on a neighbor that was brushy that there were still cows there, but it wasn't the same type of management. My, my buddy does a lot of rotation, but it's very limited cover on this place. Mm-hmm. So they bed on the neighbors and then come over onto his crop fields. Hmm. But he was like pretty essentially, and he was still, they've got a large deer population. That's why we're hunting up there. He was still following does on January 14th. And his when i so he went 160 or 158 and when i took it to the taxidermist i told him the measurements of the neck and everything he was like that's not right i'm like that's what i got and he said uh he said do you see that forking horn over there he's like that's the neck measurement of that deer Mm -hmm. i'm like well here's the picture and you can see how run down it was and it was traveling that almost every night still following does had fescue in its teeth that was a that was kind of a turnaround thing where we're like, deer don't eat fescue, deer don't eat fescue, and I'm caping it out. I'm like, this thing has fescue in its teeth, and it was just like eating stuff to keep its stomach full until the night when it went there. Wow! But that deer was traveling that far that it's like you could have. We've always like drooled over that place. Like, man, the things we could do on this place with what the capabilities that we yeah, see. That, it's like that was a very distinct pro. Like that was a product of secure cover mm-hmm. quality food spatially mm-hmm. on, on that property was very spread out and as a result that deer was still going and utilizing these areas but was traveling so far to get it well, what if you manipulated it and you started to move around food resources or secure bedding um now we can change the way a deer or a wild turkey is going to utilize that that exact same property those exact same acres but it would be dependent upon the vegetation that's growing there. It, that's see, there's there's so many interesting topics with this. Oh man, um, God, a couple of things. I got a lot. There's a lot to say about this. I'm I'm excited about this conversation. First off, I just want to backtrack just a little bit before we kind of keep going with like topic at hand. Is y'all talking about like having a trying to build a relationship with your landowners around you to like make the the greater neighborhood better okay and bring that kind of habitat management to their attention like hey maybe this is something we probably need to start working on and focus on do you have do y'all have any tips on how to approach some of these landowners or how to have some of these conversations with landowners especially whether this landowner's got 20 acres or like the landowner is adjacent to us. He owns a total Alabama statewide over 550,000 acres, mm-hmm. but he's got 10,000 acres on the backside of us. Like, how do you have that conversation with different size landowners that have different goals of what they're trying to do? Steel before steel. Yep. Episode 742. That's a good one to check out. To, to me, I would think the one of the best things is to try to, before you ever do your homework, it's like you, you may. You may have a landowner that has no interest in hunting whatsoever, but she's interested in monarchs or the, 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 the landowner, they're more interested in pollinator species than anything else. They could care less about any turkeys, anything that in that sense, but they, they like pollinators. They're, they're interested in that. It's like, okay, well, if you can go and introduce them to say the NRCS office and the the 
the uh, resources that are available to them through that, where mm-hmm. they're doing pollinator plantings on their place. And there, since they're they're getting benefit because they're seeing all the wildflowers, they're seeing all that. Well, in the same sense, that's all benefiting your turkeys and deer. That's that's the brood ring cover that you're missing on your property. But mm-hmm. an, another approach, and I, and I want to, I guess, stress this because we talked about it, I think, a little bit yesterday, Chad. Um, there's way more common ground than people will honestly admit with landowners. And it, it seems like there's just this really quick wall that people want to put up. Um, and, and you're going to get shot down. You're going to get no's and you're going to get hard no's. But don't be afraid of being told no because the one key person, you might, you might open up the door in their mind. They're going to say no verbally, but it might say, I'll come back to that conversation in two years. Maybe they start diving in a little bit more or maybe they start seeing mm. you start being super successful and saying, wow, that place changed. I'm, every time I drive past, I'm seeing game. That guy's on to something. So a no doesn't mean necessarily no forever. It means possibly down the road, honestly, if you are being a good land steward and continuing to be successful on your own place. So you're going to get told no to some degree at some point by a neighbor, but don't let that stop you. Just continue to to put your head down, do what's right by your land. Don't criticize what they're doing because they may not have the the knowledge that you have between your own ears. Mm -hmm. Like you can't knock people for not knowing something that they they just don't know. Mm -hmm. So just be that light and that resource in your area and and be positive about it. And getting the the conversation going is the biggest thing. Just start start the conversation. Be open with them. I mean, we've we've all been guilty of that. I know Adam and I have for years. It's it's one you, you didn't. We're in a very high poaching, high spot. I mean, mm. it's like a generational spotlighting road hunting area. It's always known. I mean, I, I've told people at work where my property was. And they're like, oh, gosh, how do you guys have any deer down there? It's like I grew up driving driving through there on Christmas Day looking for something to kill with Grandpa. And so <laughs> that'll your, make you feel good. <laughs> your, your natural reaction is to not tell anybody anything. But. In the same sense, if you're doing all these habitat things and seeing the benefits and you're trying to encourage other people to do it, you have to mm-hmm. be a little more open and, and share some share some of your results so you yeah, might be able yeah. to. You have to share the result because like most of these people, like let's, let's say, let's just take deer for example, mm-hmm. right? Oh, yeah. Many of them probably have never eyewitnessed a 140-inch deer. Maybe, maybe the biggest deer that they've seen is and shot on that property in years and years and years of hunting is 130 inch three and a half year old 120 inch three and a half year old great but that's what they know so that's what they think the bar is but if you are open enough to share that actually we we've got 155 160 inch four-year-old we're passing that thing it's moving on up the ladder um that's gonna say well that literally is next door to me so this area and the bar is higher than they would have ever thought, but they don't know that. Mm-hmm. So you have to you have to open up yourself a little bit. You have to be vulnerable to say, if I give out this information, it could come back to bite me, but it also could come back in years to come, say, they've just let two three-year-olds walk, or they just let two two-year-olds walk. Now we've got a bigger crop of three and four-year-olds going into every single season 
now as a whole, we're working together, we're benefiting, and now, just like him, my habitat's better, I've got a better opportunity of shooting and encountering those four, five, six-year-old deer every single season. When you think turkey calls, think of Houndstooth. Houndstooth Game Calls is a company based right here in Alabama, actually based out of Tuscaloosa, and they have been making some of our favorite turkey calls since 2012. Y'all head on over to their website, see what they got. They got a little something for everybody. They have a huge selection of different mouth calls, different cuts, different read configurations. I like to go on there and get five or six different mouth calls and just run them, see which ones I like the most. You know, some days I might like the KB hen, some days I might like the ghost cut. Some situations I might like the country girl call, you know, that I can cut on really hard where on other situations I might like the all pro that I can get a little bit softer on. Bottom line, there's something for everybody and something for every situation and hey, you can get 15% off of your order at Houndstooth Game Calls by using the promo code SOP24. That's SOP24. Use that promo code. It'll get you a discount and it helps out the podcast. Why take one vacation with the family when you could take all of them? With Royal Caribbean, you don't just go to the beach. You visit a private island and race down the tallest water slide in North America. You don't just go for a road trip. You ATV and zip line through the jungle. You don't just go somewhere new. You rappel down waterfalls and discover ancient temples. Because this isn't just any vacation. This is all the vacations. Come seek the Royal Caribbean. Ships Registry, Bahamas. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Oh, no. And I think it's also, I feel like it's also about like sharing your passion of like why it's important for you with these other landowners. I'm talking like from one landowner, like if it's important for you to have, again, focus on habitat, go ahead that conversation, build that relationship with that, those other landowners next to you and explain like your passion for it. But just like you said, talk about the success, talk about like what you're seeing, the wildflowers and everything else, especially when you're doing a, a well management and it's not just food plots and TSI, but it's also like you're putting the grasslands in and everything else and having a very diverse property. But again, just like sharing that passion with people, I feel like that will just get so much more people's attention. And again, if they say no, but like, okay, we're having a great time going out there and witnessing all these different species that are out there, even non-game species that we're just seeing. You have to, you have to go that approach. You yep. have to take that wide breath because you don't know necessarily what they're passionate mm-hmm. about. It may not be the deer, like you said, Chad. Um, it, it might be the, the plant communities that are there rare or or they just think that you can't get a grassy understory look at all them leaves well we have also seen and been criticized along the gravel road of like you guys are destroying this and that oh my gosh i can't believe this this is like year one and two and then after a couple burns and some growing seasons they're the same people driving by picking wildflowers adam and i experienced that firsthand and that's what along Mm -hmm. along a gravel road 
we had this was when the previous landowner owned it we had this section logged and we knew it was it's west facing slopes we're like okay it it a, not a high side index for growing timber it should be more open so we had the logger hit it pretty hard we had land like neighboring landowners calling the landowner asking him what he was doing and telling him he was screwing up listen to us we're like you're you're messing up you're there that's going to be a brush pile that you can't even walk through now like they, they don't know what they're doing you, you need to stop logging that and that was where we, a lot of the place we've waited because there's nrcs money out there for tsi and stuff like that we're kind of waiting on going in and doing that until we have our forestry management plan done this one until adam was like we're not waiting i'm i'm gonna cut this and thin it to what we want and start the process just to show what it's gonna look like Mm -hmm. so so it was any marketable log cut then followed up with tsi oh wow yeah. So like, I mean, pretty much. I mean, it, so, we're, we're we're talking open. Yeah. So like pretty, much, is, pretty much a clear cut. I mean, I guess there was some uh, slight. I mean, there, it was still it was like a almost like a. It would have probably qualified as as clear cut or like seed tree release. Yeah, what seed we, trees. What we generally call it. And, yep. And it it, um, it, was, it was aggressive. It was yeah. We it was it, very we aggressive. Call it, we call it Savannah down in Alabama. So a, a lot yeah. of our area in Southern Missouri, and that was one, that was another one that people kind of freaked out about was we cut a ton of dogwoods. Oh yeah, like flowering yeah. dogwoods. Mid story. Like, oh, you guys not like dogwoods? And we're like, look, look at the mid story. It's a, our, it's snow. It our mid story like is April. almost solid dogwoods. Yeah. And like, if we leave those, it's shading so much of this ground. We have no, no regrowth, no regeneration of our oaks, any of that. So we cut them hard, and even then, it was like, oh, that looks terrible. Well, then we're. I guess we're after our second burn. Yeah. This is the this is year two after the second prescribed burn. Yeah. So we did all that following up that thinning. We we we. I've thinned. got a ton of questions on this. So keep we going. thinned, <laughs> then TSI, yep. and I went in. I mean, I have an idea. Like when I go in to cut, I know like okay, I'm cutting this to this. This is what I'm looking for, and I'm just eyeballing it, cutting the trees that I want to drop, and we're already finding like rare plants coming back in stuff that was closed canopy timber and leaves underneath we've had well in like the first the first year after the thinning the first year that we had daylight we had um if if you've planted native grasses at all they generally they have there's a saying it generally takes three years it's they produce a seed head they sleep then creep then leap it generally takes about three years to have a mature seed head we had mature seed heads on blue stem in the first year of daylight and it was those root systems had laid there they Dormant. were just in the soil waiting for daylight we cut them back and there was blue stem coming up in there we were like yep that's telling us we're exactly right in this and we've had like royal catch fly and some other just like and it's as you go through the summer you see the wildflower colors and and it just shifts from species Yellows to species to as to purples as the season and it's like our our nrcs guy told me this past summer he's like i see so many more butterflies down through here he's like it may be a coincidence he's like i really don't think it is but he's like i see so many butterflies coming through there and it's like all of those things the turkeys are nesting on that hillside Mm -hmm. like crazy like you'll see turkey tracks in the spring when we're not seeing a lot of hens we'll go in there and it's like oh yeah they've been you can see turkey tracks in the puddle there's a hen nesting right here close somewhere 
and it's because well, that and, and all the non-game like the songbirds that are in there in that open canopy and a dense understory the, in the amount of seed production out of these plants too again and i just want to remind people like this was a hundred percent forest like everyone would have gone through here and be like oh look at all these trees there's so many trees wow 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 uh, oh my gosh what's happening ch- chains all yeah. chads and they're zzz. yeah, yeah, yeah. It, there it, were many days of me <laughs> walking it, off the gravel road with a chainsaw in my hand but people don't like yeah. to see the process mm-hmm. but 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 i don't think what they understand necessarily is especially on that site just because it was a forest it was not at all a healthy forest so it really needed a big facelift case in point hammer the timber tsi burn it that's what the historical site suggested to do and then you get back that understory uh, of grasses forbs and shrubs Mm -hmm. and at the density and dispersal across the slope it's like this is the best condition this thing has seen in 40 50 years this is exactly the way it should be operating and now everyone's like it's funny to hear like even even dad oh and adam killed a great buck out of it this year yeah yeah, walking right in the through middle that of stuff. And we figured out he was using that like crazy, and that's what. Go 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 figure. Just real quick, just while we're on this topic, because I'm real curious on this. Forgot when you're when you're doing select cuts, clear cuts, whatever you know, seed tree cut, however you want to call it in different situations. How soon after that are y'all running a fire through it? Because again, after depending, it depends on the logger too of how well they took care of everything, as in slash piles or just where slashes all over the ground. How soon afterwards are you running a fire, and how soon does that start changing over to again those native kind of grasses? So we, it depends on when the logging was yeah, done, what time of the year the logging was done. After leaf the litter. logging, there's generally not a lot of yep. fuel. Um, just with the skid trails and stuff, it's hard to get a fire to pull through. And then the way our area, you know, certain areas have different styles of logging. Um, you go down south, a lot of times you have it where they are, they're skidding out whole trees. They're skidding out the whole tops. They leave the leaves. This, <laughs> that's it. In our area where it's, they're cutting hardwoods and that's it. Um, they're, they're bucking the tops in the, in the timber like they they cut them down then they cut they cut them to the log or like full-length log and skid them out but they leave the tops in the woods so the tops are scattered all through the timber um which people really love to see yeah (laughs) i mean it it looks bad i mean to especially i mean even us it was like so we're we're doing a lot more logging on the place now that adam and i owned it and it's even us walk in and you're like that's rough but it, it we know it needs it um, it needs and it's not up, forever. You end up with a lot of jackpots of slash piles that, that get pretty hot. So we try to follow it up with a fire pretty soon after in a time that's not as extreme fire conditions. Mm-hmm. So we can more burn the tops up than anything and reduce the fuel so that our next better burn doesn't kill a bunch of stuff carries and and pulls through evenly we use the same sense the same type deal with when we do cedar cutting like we did a glade restoration Mm -hmm. you know a cedar burns like a bomb i mean it goes off like a bomb and and there's a lot of different opinions and some of the stuff i consider misinformation on going in and, and doing a bunch of cedar slashing like this glade restoration we did there's people that say leave them two or three years and let the needles fall off so it doesn't burn as hot i've done so much in my my own job along with our stuff where i do not like to leave them lay for a long time because it's 
especially in the glade stuff those are a very dry climate and a very dry ecosystem and leaving the cedars lay holds moisture and i see a lot of hardwood sprouting that shouldn't be there in those areas because it lays there and holds moisture and gives them a chance to grow that they normally if it's dense cedar as well then you have no mobility or very reduced mobility for game animals if you're wanting to use that site to improve it for game populations Mm -hmm. they've got to be able to navigate the site so you've got to consume that debris so generally what we try to do on the cedar slashing especially is go in and like Missouri has pretty open burn regulations. You're, you're Un- not unlike real, a lot of states. You're not real constrained by that. So we can go in and like burn at night. I really like to burn them at night. We'll go in oh, in yeah. the dark. You you have Just to have glow. the perfect conditions. That's cool. Okay. But you can get it to where now it takes a lot of walking, but you can light each top individually and you don't carry a real hot fire. And at night it doesn't harm the the overstory as bad. You don't, um, have, you don't have the heat of the day. You don't have the humidity of the day. You've changed that burn window, but those cedars will still be burnable. So you kind of it's like a kind of a fuel reduction fire. Mm. Or, or you can go in in the snow. That's mm-hmm. another one I've done a lot. Go in with snow on so you know the fire's not going to go anywhere, mm-hmm. and you can just burn the jackpots. And it's general. I mean, if you've got mm. snow on, it's cold enough that you're not having the heat affecting the overstory trees as bad. So you can reduce like the fuel two, loading. Two, two days after the snow burns off the cedar, but it's still on the ground, or the ground is at least super moist and it will not carry that fire, go in there and light those brush that's, piles essentially That's where off. the drip torch comes in handy, though, so you can sling it. Yep. And you're slinging fire in those cedar tops, and you're reducing that fuel. And, and with that, you can come in then and do a regular prescribed burn and not have as much fuel loading and burn as hot. Yeah, not as much you say, step, risk. Yeah. Phase project. Heavy, but, heavy fuel reduction and then move through that site uh, and so burn. So like, like a lot of our fires, when we go in, even in the oak canopy stuff in, in the tops, we'll go in and do a, a burn in conditions that aren't as extreme, mm-hmm. that aren't as great, the higher humidities, stuff that's not going to burn as well, and we probably have to walk and do a lot of stripping through the timber to get fire. But then our next burn, we can do it when, it's the, temp- when the, the humidities are a little lower and we get a better burn to pull through, but we don't go three years where stuff can't grow. Because like our, the glade we did this past year, we did a glade restoration on the farm. We cut it. I mean, there were it was thick cedars. It had been a long time since I had seen any management so whatsoever. And we burned it. We killed some trees, and people that burn with us know they love. Well, like our NRCS guy Colby Sharp was like, "I love to burn with you guys because I know you're going to kill some trees." We natural fire did not did not like selectively identify yeah, trees it, to it move around. Some, it killed some trees. Yeah. You, you know, I mean, that's how that we had openings. It, and I want to say, like, that was part of the landscape. Dead trees. Like, it, it's not something that's like, oh, oh my gosh, a tree, it just, it just died. Like that, uh, I won't say this, like, this amazing life form. That's how things worked. Mm-hmm. Whether you like it or not, that was the reality. And that creates additional structure for things like um, secondary cavity nesters, right? Birds, uh, of the, their perches over top, like that was just part of the landscape. So dead trees, seeing them, it's not like this awful thing happened. That's a house. That's a home. That's a perch. That's something we, beneficial. So we burned, that, we burned that glade like right at dark. 
and that's we that's, had, a, that's awesome. Was, we had a whole area. We, have, we got some we'll pictures. Have to, we'll have to show you some of the pictures yeah. we did because it it's really. I love burning at night because yeah. it, it glows. And so the, I mean, and we draw people from all around. We'll drive around and look at our burnt because they just see this huge glow. Dad's a pyro, and I mean, it comes honestly to Adam and I. <laughs> but Dad loves when we burn too, and he shows up, and that's what like a lot of times we're like, Dad, can you watch the road here? And, He'll have people come up and talk to him, and he's like, "One person, he's like, we thought there was a house on fire over here. We could just see a huge glow coming from over. We, like, we live over on the next highway. Just saw the huge glow and came over. So we end up drawing traffic and gawkers. Yeah. But um, the the glade. This, this is the day them. after the burn oh, at night, dude. That's awesome. So you can see all, all that, that cedar consumption. There's no needles. They're, they were green. They are consumed and burned through. Our farm, the one I was telling you about, has a lot of that. And we, we went in, my uncle went in and cut all the cedars down, and they've been laying. That's why he's trying to get the, the one of the forest or someone to come out and actually they're going to do a prescribed fire. Yeah. But that was the reason because there's so much fuel load. Yeah. I mean, it's going to be, it's, it's going to kill. It's tough. And, and that's what, like, there was an area of that glade that Adam and I had cut in the past mm-hmm. that we'd left the cedars lay. And the response in that compared to what we, what Here, we've here's done. some of the response. Um, there you go. It's oh, dude, yeah, that's it's, awesome. It's just insane. Wildflowers, like, native grasses. Yeah, that's awesome. Smoke trees. And a, and a side part of this this glade that we did the stuff on. Um, we have turkey hunted and deer hunted this place since for what like twenty years, probably mm-hmm. something like that. We've hunted. I've never. Never, for <laughs> sure, right. never turkey hunted this this glade area. It's this a little short point, ridge. Yeah. Hunted all around it, but I've never been on it. Mm-hmm. I killed a turkey on this glade this past spring. Like, the first turkey of the year. Opening, call it, opening morning. Yeah, opening morning, call it across, call it across a creek, and then up on this glade. Killed it, and Adam and I were like, well, that would have never happened there before. Oh, my, that is so cool, dude. That's, that's the night burning picture. Dude, that is an awesome photo. Oh, man, that is so cool. That is all. Aw- yeah. That's awesome. That is that- well. So, there's so many things that can be done, especially with these properties, based off like what's happening, especially when it comes to understanding. Well, see, y'all coming from like the, the professional background. A lot of this, like, if I was an individual landowner, that's a lot of that's very overwhelming. That's why mm-hmm, people sure. hire guys like you guys to come yeah. out, put the plan together, and potentially actually help with you know doing the work because y'all offer the work too, right? So y'all do a, a lot of it's the consulting side of okay. it, the, the if you will, intellectual property. We're gonna we're gonna, we're gonna give you. Well, I tell people is we're gonna give you the blueprint mm-hmm. of you know the maps, the visual. This is what we want to achieve, and then the kind of the written portion, the report is is the steps right this is how we're going to achieve it this is the roadmap um to accomplish what the blueprint looks like yeah uh, so that's essentially what we do but we will work with subcontractors and hi- help hire them and oversee some work uh, but generally speaking no it's not us mm-hmm. um out there because on our own places going to the next especially, project. especially like fire yeah. you only have so many burn days a year and yeah. it's it's like and, and fire those, changes, conditions change in an afternoon, and there's just we, no we way to We can't plan ahead. It's like yeah. it, generally our fires consist of, have you seen the weather for Friday? Uh, it looks like a good burn day. I'll I'll, I'll take so off work, a, if I'll, and assemble. I'll meet you guys. Yeah, rally. Can we, can we get enough people to burn it? And it's like and then a lot of times it's a rush that morning before we get started. It's leaf blowers running to try to get line blown in and get it ready to go so that we can get it burnt. So, look, y'all missed – I wish Michael was here. He had to leave this morning. Uh, 
he was he told a story when we had Travis on, and he was talking about we, we talked a little bit about fire and Scott fires and everything, and he said he was on some national forest uh, yep. in Alabama, and it was a little block, it was a couple hundred acre block that was sitting around some private landowners, and he was in there. And he said by like nine o'clock in the morning, someone there was like a, there was a logging trail that went around, was driving around like honking, dan, 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 like driving, and he was like, what's going on? Because he heard some dogs too, whatever. He's like, that's weird, and he sat in there till like two o'clock, and when he got back, he said there was a crew of fifty dudes. And like they had all this excavator stuff, and they're all suited up right through a fire with drip torches, and they're waiting for him to come out. And oh I'm, yeah. And I'm like, dude, they were so upset because who knows if the conditions change in that oh, window of time? Right, right. And, and it's like, I bet you they were ticked. He said, he said, <laughs> two of the guys was like, thank God you came out, and uh, they like. The second he got out, he's like, "Is anyone else in there?" Like, no. And they just started lighting and going. Yeah, yeah. But I was like, "That's." Yeah. They should have smoked him out. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay. So, so another thing, I'm, I'm I'm a pyro at heart too. So that's why I love talking fires. I've never been a part of a prescribed fire, but we're gonna do a couple, or at least one this spring on our family farm. Um, but one of our other buddies, who's a biologist down in uh, South Alabama, he works a lot in the Connecticut National Forest. He did something where they went somewhere and they did drift boats. They were doing like like drift boats going down some little river with the fire ping pongs oh, and the gun. Oh, yeah, yeah, and they're yeah, yeah. shooting them off the. And he had video. Oh, it was the coolest yep. thing ever. I got, <laughs> I got to do the ping pong ball gun this this past this past winter. Okay, I got to. I've used the we. That was the first district I've been on that had that. I've I've done it with uh, uh, like berry pistols and it's pistols that shoot blanks that shoot flares out in i've lit with that kind of stuff before and been on fires with the helicopters lighting with the ping pong balls i mean it's all yeah. it's all awesome i mean it's awesome to see for sure awesome to be a part of but but yeah the ping pong ball thing was a new one i've never gotten the light from the boat though that that's that one that i've always sweet. dude they're wearing i mean he's wearing helmets and everything because they're going down i mean it's not like a smooth river it's got a little bit of rapids and he's like and it was like, ding, ding, and it was just shooting his light in their line as they're going down the river. Mm. It was cool, dude. But it's like, the, it's smoke. I, real quick, I want y'all to touch on this. What is y'all's take on the whole campaign, Smokey the Bear, and kind of the negative aspect <laughs> it did to landowners? I'm gonna, <laughs> I'm gonna refrain yeah, from this yeah. conversation. I should. Um, so, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. yeah so Matt, I'll, you, I'll I need handle you, that one. Matt, so, I need you to so as land and legacy, um, I, I think there was potentially some at that time of the the that the campaign was beginning. Mm -hmm. I think there were some probably good intentions, but what it did, it completely scared people away from any fire usage, right? Um, People now don't make a distinction between intentional prescribed burning and a wildfire. All of it's fire. Don't get me wrong. But we're talking intentional, planned fire is is 100% a natural tool that manages the landscape and these plant communities that we're talking about are so beneficial for wildlife various forms of wildlife and that's what they're managed by like these these plants their disturbance is fire and so we can't remove a useful tool to manage the landscape and expect that we're going to have the same results that we did years and years and years ago and so that campaign has really put a bad taste of fire on the landscape in people's mouth and has gotten us to the point that um that the landscape is what it is now honestly because fire has been so far removed from um the culture of mm-hmm. land management that now we're having to go back and re-educate people on no 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 guys it's safe it's it's a good thing it's positive like this is what we need those people who are using it and f- using it frequently they're seeing amazing results 
And I say amazing results because what is that they're surrounded by kind of this island theme, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but you didn't know you're going to a beach today. <laughs> oh, yeah, I'm all about it. <laughs> but but this whole like island deal is that they're they're creating something that people haven't even seen. Like in this day and age, mm-hmm. the plant communities, the arrangement, um, people can't even visualize what it is that we're talking about because we're so far removed from fire being on the landscape that this is the situation we're fire, in. Fire. We need education on good fire. fire just naturally scares people mm-hmm. and and you think about what do you see <clears throat> when you look at anything with the news on fire what do you see you, you don't see, see this prescribed burn that they got done that they accomplished all these you don't see a great positive. habitat effects it's always these wildfires that are burning down houses mm-hmm. i mean that's what you see it, and we've dealt with it even in southern missouri burning stuff and have have neighbors that are new and aren't used to it and like freak out and call the other neighbors like your your house is fixing to burn down you better get your stuff out of it there's huge we were burning of course we were burning some stuff that had standing cedars that we were having 30 or 40 foot flame links and so they're just seeing these huge flames and i mean they they freaked out and thought we were going to burn somebody's house down it's like there's past there's grazed pastures on all sides of that thing it's not going anywhere going anywhere but to if you just watch the news and knew nothing about fire and then you you saw that you're thinking the same thing that this thing's fixing to burn thousands of acres that's their exposure to fire itself right when it's burning on a landscape they see destruction Mm -hmm. where really we see tool usefulness management um the great great results let's say and and proper no proper disturbance because it is and and, and that's maybe something we can touch on too it's like i mean this this episode's going i mean this we got enough here we could do a four-hour podcast on it (laughs) but uh the idea of disturbance is what's natural in the landscape and we've taken away disturbance over the last 40 50 60 years uh, from the landscape, for most people, like most ownerships, again, as you know, um, for agriculture, has a, I would has say a we've f- removed we've removed some a lot of disturbances, mm-hmm. but even prior to that, we changed a lot of disturbances. There were still some disturbance, yeah, but but it was changed from its original state. Now we're getting to a standpoint where most people are just like, I don't want to touch the timber, I don't want to do nothing, and so it's like now the disturbances are just removed <laughs> completely. Well, and even even this is hunters. Where it's there's that large misconception of if you have oak trees, you've got food for everything, mm-hmm. and and it's one that you blow people's minds when you tell them like you have these huge chunks of large closed canopy timber, and you have this you have acorns for only a short part of the year, and I mean you see a lot of closed canopy timber if they're choked like that and very most timbers overstocked, they're not going to be as productive acorn wise. But in the same sense, you think of historically, there were woodland buffalo across the landscape. You have to have a lot of food for those things to go through there. And that's where you look at the the prairies and the woodlands offered so much more food for those than what we have now in this closed canopy timber. But there's the misconception that large, that this closed canopy timber is, oh, it's provide more food than anything else. Mm-hmm. Well, no, there, there used to be another way. And, and even then you have like, Dr. Harper's research out of Tennessee where they went in and thinned the canopy, thinned the trees, thinned the hardwoods, and they actually identified the producing trees, the producing acorn or like oak trees within the landscape and then thinned around those. 
and it was, Matt, 20, you, it was 25% increase in mass production with it like in a year's time frame mm-hmm. but they identified that 70% of the acorns produced are produced by 40% of the trees 40% of the white oaks on a given site right mm-hmm. so within these studies um you, you could quickly find that not every white oak is equal, right? There's good producers, there's medium producers, and then there's poor producers. Not every tree is, is equal. And every hunter, if they really think about it, they know that. Mm-hmm. They see that on the landscape when they're hunting in the fall. Like, wow, that tree just did awesome. Well, that's your that's the tree that's really good at reproducing mast, and it has a lot of forage, and that's why you see game going to it. But if you thin around that tree, you're going to further increase its ability because you've reduced the competition mm. around that individual tree but but you could go i mean this is going to freak people out um but you can literally probably thin 50 percent of your oaks and still produce more acorns <gasps> talk about cutting oaks yeah but, then, like that, but that's that's and then you ahead. throw in the results of of thinning those mm-hmm. yes. you have so much more food on the landscape well, after that because auburn, of the sunlight auburn did a, did a research project and if you thin the canopy by 30% so a 30% canopy reduction mm-hmm. and then you apply prescribed fire to that understory you increase the deer food by 500% oh. in that understory mm-hmm. yeah. so, so we're just talking about what if you do that in a mixed oak stand now we've got more mass producers producing more mast but then we have an understory that's increased the forage wise by 500% well we just took that acre that was just junk maybe producing 50 to 100 pounds of food an acre in the understory and increased it by 500% and then and then seeing that we're at the NWTF show mm-hmm. let's throw in turkeys into that Woo. you have this closed canopy timber that yeah maybe there was a portion of the year that, that they went through that a lot and fall right? and who There's doesn't mass. like to kill a turkey in the spring strutting through big open hardwoods but if you've taken a portion of your property and thin that, you have after like after your burn, two or three years after your burn is prime nesting habitat. You burn it, it's great brooding habitat. So you end up mm. with so much more to offer the turkeys as well. Rather rather than the occasional flock that moves through in the fall consuming acorns, now you've got spring usage, you've got summer usage, you've got reproduction actually occurring on your site, or the, at least the opportunity to do that. They're not going to select that site to raise broods in because it's not brood rearing habitat mm-hmm. or they're not going to intentionally select that site as a nesting site because it's not good nesting substrate. Like it's not usable anymore. But when you do that to that acre and you manipulate it, you have those disturbances. Now we've created something out of nothing. Mm-hmm. And then if you're, you also throw in that if you're uh using diversity across your landscape and you're not burning the whole place and you have your turkeys become predictable oh no there's no doubt about that i mean we 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 see it every year now where you burn the places that's where you're gonna find you're gonna find at least a turkey birds will be roosted birds will be um strutting in there because the understory is pretty much consumed or early portions of the spring or it's succulent um or or if it's just like a recent burn, like three days ahead, um, they, like they're in there foraging as soon as they pitch off a limb. So they're roosted in there. Mm-hmm. We've, we've seen turkeys jump them out of fresh burns the next day when we're checking. 
like check the burns and jump turkeys out of it in the morning where it's like how did that thing get here so fast i killed one in north carolina this is probably five years ago and it was still smoking and there were stumps still on fire when we uh, located them the night before in the actual burn oh, yeah. and went in there and it was nothing but soot and burn up saplings and stuff. Sat yeah. in there and me and my buddy doubled. I mean, in, in a burn and there was, it was... And, and tell me disturbances aren't good. Oh, and, uh, and, yeah. and that they don't positively correlate their movements and usage to disturbances. So, a guy I mentioned earlier when I was shooting the ping pong balls, the biology thing was going down the, the forest or going down the uh, rivers and everything. He also hunts that national forest and he's he calls himself a burn chaser. So, he is he's, yeah. he knows where they're I mean, he figures out kind of where they're going to be burning and he's there I mean hours after the second the crew's coming out he's going in listening Yelping. for dirty yeah, 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 yeah. I mean <laughs> and he kills him. and he actually dude this sounds crazy you know he doesn't wear any camo you see anywhere mm-hmm. else he found some camo online that is literally like almost black soot and it's not totally black but it's got it almost looks like tire straps it looks ridiculous in any other <laughs> spot but he wears it in and he showed me photos when he wears like a black mask and everything lays up against these burnt pine trees and everything's black soot around him oh, yeah. and his gun's dark and he just blends in because if you're wearing moss oh, grill tree yeah. and that stuff you sit up like a sore thumb leafy nope. green ain't, ain't the play in that, no, that situation no, no not <laughs> at all dude but uh, it, that is that is super interesting. But one thing I've, I didn't ahead. realize this with the prescribed fires, which I'd like to y'all talk about, is most people think, at least me, I was, I'm going to assume most people potentially think like me that aren't educated on this. Oh, we're going to do a prescribed fire. We're just going to burn the whole property. Yeah. But then I've been told, especially Adam's had this conversation with me about you're doing like patches, like you're, you're like rotating patches. So you have different diversity and different burn cycles all in one property, no matter if that property is 50 acres or 500 acres. And you have so much more to offer those birds. I mean, the quail, the turkey yeah. and the deer in one small area instead of burning everything at once. There, there's there's a, a hundred percent truth to that because you don't want, essentially, if you burn 500 acres every single time, the same time frame, now you have a monoculture understory. Essentially, mm-hmm. right? But if you break up that 500 acres into eight to 10 different units, you burn three one year, three the next, three the next, and then, you know, three or four years. Now we're talking, we've got um, different diversity and different regeneration rates underneath this canopy. And so then we have spatially on the landscape brood rearing cover or ideal brood rearing cover adjacent to nesting cover or um, great uh, area, strutting areas for toms in the in the springtime um, or deer. Now we've got oh, different yeah. diversity yep. of regeneration where you have maybe some areas that are on a I, I'm going to introduce this thought. So we have different burn units that we're burning at different intervals too, right? Some some of these burn areas we're going to burn every two to three years. Some we're going to wait four, five, six years in between. So further at adding a diversity and how often fires on the landscape mm-hmm. will then produce different plant communities as well. So not only do we have a patchwork <laughs> of how we've incorporated fire, but then we have more hardwood saplings in this four or five year interval. That's a better bedding area for deer. So in the fall, that's what I'm hunting in and around mm-hmm. because the co- cover component is much different from an area that is a two to three year burn cycle. Mm-hmm. So not only have you shifted plant communities, communities you've produced an understory but now you've created predictability in what your game is using on your property when they're using them it, i'm not gonna say this this is overconfident but but <laughs> it, it is more to this degree um but it's like shooting fish in a barrel because the vegetation dictates what those game species will be doing at the certain times of the year. Deer use, using um, a hardwood ridge that has been burned every 
five years and thinned, um, well, they're going to use that in the fall. Like, I, I know that. That's, that's where daylight hours, they're going to be spent. Then they're going to move off into a thinned hardwood oak stand for foraging. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm just going to get in the middle. I'm a hunter. I'm going to kill them because mm-hmm. I know they're bedded here, but they're going to feed right here because of the work that's been done and what's being offered on the landscape. Same thing with turkeys. Mm-hmm. I think this is, a, I guess, a common misconception of turkey hunters. What's good for turkeys in the spring doesn't mean it's good for them in the summer or the fall or the winter. So where you're killing birds in the spring is not where birds are being raised. Mm, so that, you got to think like calendar it's, year, calendar year, what is useful across the board. And then when chicks are born, dude, I mean, we're talking like three inches tall. Mm-hmm. Then they're going to grow up into a bird that stands three foot tall. Like imagine the vegetation that they're going to use differently across an entire year, right? To well, get see, from like, that size <clears throat> to an adult. Adam and I had the conversation this spring. It's it's one of those. It's, it's a, springtime? It's, it's incredible how much <laughs> that those poults will use those prescribed burns. Because, you know, everything you do, you, you're always like, if you're not seeing it, you, you have those doubts. And that's what Adam, Adam are talking about. like, where are the hens at? Where, where are the poults at? Why are we not seeing them? What's the deal? And, and we, we had some ideas. We're like, I think they're in that burn and we're not, we're not in there. I think a bunch of them are using our burn areas and that's why we're not seeing them. We're not around those areas right now. And it was like then the cows moved in and that stuff and the poults were bigger and all of a sudden it's like there's poults everywhere right now. And it was it was just they were using our burned areas. Of of the landscape, right, of the property, they weren't designated to very specific areas. There was broad areas that were useful for them. So your encounter rate early on was was low. Mm-hmm. That doesn't mean they weren't there. They were there, but they weren't they moving just had, a lot. And that's just where had like areas that they could go to. Doctor Chamberlain's research and hearing talking, it's like the more the more broods move, the more chances they have of dying. The farther they have to move to great habitat, high risk, the more chance that they die. And it's like, oh well, ours weren't moving. Ours mm. were living in there. Uh, let me ask on, on y'all's farm. Have y'all is this an area that has it had quail ever in the past? And is that something that y'all see yeah. now, or is it still just not much in that area? That region? you guys had a a, a, a a covey on one of those ridges yeah, that you guys cut. We had a covey show up. Um, we had a landowner north of us that did some heavy logging, and heard from a buddy that hunted that place that he was seeing quail there. And it was in that same time span. We had a food plot that just it set up as a we had some decent habitat around and then had a lot of food for them in that food plot and the, the quail kind of staged up in that area um, besides that it's you had to go back to when I was a kid when we had quail around the farm a little more and um, before that or since then it's been pretty limited um, we heard quail this year mm-hmm. whistling in this area, I mean, a lot of our logging is brand new, so it's like we're expecting them to start yeah. showing up. Yeah, like how long has this management practice been like active on this property? Like how long? Especially like the in depth that we're talking about here with no, like the more not long, not long. So like it's still um, early, it's super oh, yeah. early. Dude, dude, that's a, that's the thing, and I think if people think that what what's being done mm-hmm. is like unobtainable, and that these results are like over the course of twenty years, we're talking like three years. Four years, uh, like the, on, the on first, some sites, the first six the months, the first on chunk others. of logging has been <clears throat> what was it? Four or five years ago? Four, I think. Four or five years ago, no, something it is like five. that. It is five. Yeah, we we did those chunks of logging, and then 
it kind of shut down, and now Adam and I bought it about a year ago, and that's when we've really kicked up the the level of, of stuff. And we we burned on some of it all I mean, before, yeah. but... The, 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 the best results... Well, we haven't seen yet on those yeah. sites. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's, it's, it's new. And yeah, we've, we've done a lot of yeah. we've done a lot of stuff on the farm, on the family farm, mm-hmm. but it was still limited. Our place is close to due for a logging there, but we're not at that stage right now. Mm-hmm. So it's been more <coughs> limited. You don't want to get we've too more, aggressive on it. We've until done more TSI on that place, yeah. and and burning to see enough effects that's like. The, the we can really has it, the can up. has been cracked on that portion, but not fully open. So uh, yeah, uh, it's, it's pretty. W- one thing I want to I want to go back to yeah. real quick. Yeah. Um. And in, in, in going back to that that prescribed fire usage and getting over the hurdle of actually putting it on your property. This is what I tell landowners that we work with, and it's not the perfect illustration, but it gets the point across. Mm-hmm. When Everyone picks up a chainsaw. Most landowners are like, yeah, I, I, I can run that chainsaw. Sure, 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 yeah. But they learned how to use that chainsaw. They didn't know automatically how to fell that tree. Mm. But when they first picked it up, they knew that this saw could potentially cut my leg off, right? Like there's danger with running a chainsaw. We run chainsaws all the time. I don't think about that danger when I pick it up, but I know it's there. Mm-hmm. I'm just very comfortable with using that tool because... We've ran hours and hours and hours and thousands of trees have dropped. But, like, there still is that danger associated with that tool. But it's a very useful tool, and it doesn't stop me from using the tool. I just had to learn how to use it. It's the exact same thing with prescribed fire. And there is some danger associated with it. And just because we'll do multiple fires in a, in a year doesn't mean that that fire couldn't get out or the conditions couldn't change. But you know how to use the you know how to use the tool wisely mm-hmm. so you just have to be a part of a, a a prescribed fire you have to take the class you have to take the get the education but don't let that fear stop you from learning an incredible tool that will change your property far beyond everybody else's fire is very complex too like yeah. i mean just in some of what you've touched on and it's it, it can be very simple when you're just <laughs> learning but as you learn more about fire you you learn to manipulate your fire to what your desired results are like part of our farm some of our units are multiple slopes we have east facing north facing all within this one unit and we have south and west there's one ridge we burn that that whole ridge is within it so we burn where we have hotter fire on the south and west slopes and then we're just let it back back down the north ridges because those would not they're generally more moist they don't have the same fire that the south and west Mm -hmm. so we we let those back down them we may light it in certain circumstances but let it more of a mosaic pattern where it kind of fingers down that so when when you throw that topography difference in a burn unit now you have added diversity with even though you're burning in all the same time frame the same with dormant season you're firing techniques and the topography in that given unit will have and yield different responses as well and you see that a lot of times where i see people you know you look at like forest service land where they're burning landscape scale fires where they're burning five or six thousand acres at a time and people like oh my gosh it's five or six thousand acres i'm used to when when i burn 10 acres i burn it completely off and it's slicked off well those landscape burns are burned totally different they burn they burn the black line the outsides a lot of times they're lighting with a helicopter down the ridges and then just letting it back 
you'll go through those burns and the drainages are not burned. Yeah, you so have, so instead of having 5,000 acres of continuous fired area, you have chunks of unburned throughout that. So it's not a 5,000 acre completely blacked out area. Which, which is very useful. I mean, very desired. Like, I think everyone expects like um, fire to be on the landscape and just complete black right underneath. That's not always necessarily the best result for a given area. And so like what you talked about, you have, again, now diversity in, in a giant fire unit, and that's ideal. Is that what's called when – because I've heard, Chad, like you've mentioned it. I know Adam mentioned it before. I never asked him. And I think Matt, mm-hmm. you might mention it today, a mosaic fire. What, what does that mean? Like – what is that terminology? What yeah, do you mean by patchy? Okay, essentially, so it's not like, like a line. It has those fingers yeah, and everything. It's and gaps. It's not a like solid line burned to a spot. It's fingered through. There's there's patches of unburned <laughs> throughout. It's, it's, not, it's not a military crew cut, right? Where it's just all slicked off. But this is like a, a five year old got got the kitchen shears and started going after its hair. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. And 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 see in the same sense with the fires, then you throw that where. The next time you burn it, there's areas with more fuel naturally. So sometimes those areas will burn a little hotter. So you have even more diversity throughout that through three or four burn cycles where some areas burn a little hotter, some areas don't. And you have that throughout every burn where generally that's the plan is you light it like that to where it just fingers around. You burn some like the ridges are going to burn hotter Mm -hmm. every time. That's I mean, that's supposed to burn hotter. Not as much. And then especially... You throw wind on top of that variable too, but the wind yeah. is going to push that fire around those slopes and points and drainages completely all different, all yeah, differently. No. So from one year to the next, you might say, "Well, we burned in April last year, in April this, you know, four years down the road." Well, you have different conditions. That fire and that fuel load is different now than it was four years ago. Even though it's the same time frame, response-wise, it's going to be generally different to some degree. Mm, see, and that's something that we've seen. That makes more sense talking about the mosaic fashion of like some of these bigger fires and stuff, or even like some of the smaller fires where you have a lot of these topography situations. I can see this also like some of these areas talking about glades. We, the place on our farm that's like a glade, we call it the rock garden because it's got all those rock outcroppings yep. and kind of like had the cedars and everything there. And it's amazing kind of see how fire goes around them. <laughs> on public land, we've hunted places where they run that fire and those little drainages going through these, you know, thin, mature, longly ponds or even some of these oaks have a thicker cover and that's like where you're catching the deer slipping through they have that transition edge right there and sometimes turkeys it's a great spot for you to slip up one of those thick little drainages and pop out right where the turkeys are going up on top of the ridge you you talk about a glade mixed into a a wooded unit well now we've just completely changed the fuel load right you're burning leaves in a portion and now you're burning an understory of grass and forbs now we're burning different material so responses are going to be different it's going to burn hotter quicker faster especially if you're on any type of slope so real real quick, and then we'll wrap this up. Uh, and if y'all have more availability this week, I got another idea for an episode. I think that would be pretty killer. <laughs> um, but what is the nutrition level or nutrition facts of burning in that carbon being put back into the soil? Yeah, like, great. So let, let's go through this um, different vegetation types. Um, and this is research out of University of Tennessee. So let's say we have one acre of closed canopy forest. Okay. It's producing annually, as an as an understory, 50 to 100 pounds of digestible forage for deer per acre, right? So 50 to 100, but a deer eats 2,000 pounds of food annually. So that's a lot of acres to produce enough forage for deer, okay? 
Now if you take one of those same acres and you just clear cut it, so you've got a young force regenerating, that same exact acre would produce a thousand pounds. So at least 10 times the value of that closed canopy forest. But you add prescribed fire onto that, now you're at 1,500 pounds of food in that acre. So we've just increased from a thousand to 1,500 on those exact same acres by incorporating prescribed fire into that system. That's pretty awesome. So you're, you're not only managing and manipulating the plant communities that are there, you're, you're then increasing the forage component that, that's available. Because if you just cut, clear cut mm-hmm. a hardwood stand, you're going to get a lot of hardwood saplings. But once you incorporate fire, fire is going to start top killing and you're creating more room for forbs, for brambles to incorporate itself in. So that's where that higher level of food will come from, just manipulating that acre further. Fascinating. Well, Kyle, you don't have a headset. You'll be able to be on the next episode. Kyle Sides is sat down next to us. Um, but that's that's interesting. Again, I'm super excited about trying to implement some of this fire on, on our property and kind of see how it changes the landscape. It's been used on one portion of the property. It's amazing, <coughs> the transition there. But I'm very excited to kind of see as we do this with more pieces of the property. And again, do that. Some of it's going to be like, again, that mosaic, just because the way it's going to run, it can't run in a straight line in some of the habitat. And just see how it transitions and changes over the next few years. Because, again, this is a long-term goal. This is not something that's automatic. But, again, like Chad, you'd mentioned, you know, y'all have already seen in a short period of time, like a rebound in turkey population and everything else, which is interesting. Which I want to save for because that's yeah. a, that's a, that's another topic. <laughs> if y'all got some fright, if y'all have any a gap of time later this weekend or something, let me know because it's, sure it's something I want to, I really want to go into on that topic. Okay. Well, that, that property that um, you, that we manage close yeah, to yeah, your place. Yeah, yeah. Um, <clears throat> burning frequently dormant season growing season fires um what were old clear cuts um a lot of old pine stands and now some old field incorporated into that um quail numbers they were present when i was there and have exploded since that's awesome that's right there in your in your neck of the oh, woods. it's i mean miles down the road i mean just a few miles yeah yeah absolutely so hop skip and jump that's awesome well awesome guys well i appreciate y'all coming on if anybody's interested in reaching out to you all for consulting or anything like that yeah. or just want to follow along to a podcast how do they go about finding you guys Yeah, just uh on on instagram and facebook just search land and legacy on uh, itunes is the same way um and then go to www.landandlegacy.tv that's our website we can get more information on consulting shoot us an email um but yeah, man, appreciate it. Awesome, awesome, Matt, Chad, appreciate it, and uh, all the listeners. Make sure y'all tune in for our next episode. Oh, oh, what we get? What we get? YouTube. Right. We have videos okay. of prescribed fires, um, manipulation. Some of the sites that we were just talking about, mm-hmm. you could find them on our YouTube. Okay. Or if you go to Whitetail Properties, they have Land Beat. We've been doing basically two videos a week on their channel, and a lot of these sites that we're talking about are right there available, so people can get the visual side of what we've just been talking about on either one of those That's channels. Awesome. Well, again, guys, ever all the listeners, make sure you go check out Land and Legacy. Check out what they got going on. If you have questions, of course, reach out for consulting. And again, just appreciate y'all guys coming on the podcast. And again, it won't be the last time you're going to be on the podcast, so I appreciate it. <laughs> Thanks, guys. Thanks. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Southern Outdoorsman Podcast. Make sure you subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes coming out. And help us grow the community by sharing this podcast with a friend.
You guys seem to really have enjoyed over the last year where we've went to a Q&A format every Thursday on the show where we answer some listener questions. Now, some of the most common ones that we get have to do with gear, but also how to find a good hunting buddy. You know, I'm really lucky to, to have a hunting buddy like Jacob. We've been on a lot of incredible hunting trips together over the years, and it's just nice to have somebody that, you know, is always down to go on that that trip that you've always wanted to go on or, or who'll wake up at three o'clock in the morning and go get that gate before someone else does on public land with you, whatever the case may be. And like I said, we get a lot of questions on how do you find, you know, a group of people who enjoy that same thing so you can kind of network and make some connections. The Mobile Hunters Expo is the place to do that. Y'all heard us talk about it last year. And guess what? This year it's happening in Dalton, Georgia. We're going to be there June 28th through the 30th. We're going to be there all three days. We're going to have a booth. You can come talk to us. We talked to a lot of you guys last year, had a ton of fun. So looking forward to that again. But guys, I'm telling you, this is the place to come network. And there's going to be a ton of you guys there. A lot of Southern Outdoorsman podcast listeners are going to be at this show. And actually, Friday, June 28th, there's going to be an after-hour social after the expo. So what better place to go kind of intermingle, hang out with a bunch of like-minded people, and probably pick up a couple new hunting buddies. So you guys don't miss it. It's June 28th through the 30th. I'm telling you, if you listen to this podcast, this is an event you need to be at. Now, we'll see you guys at the Mobile Hunters Expo June 28th through the 30th in Dalton, Georgia.